as always, on this first day of the week and as your people, to do as you have bid us to do, what you have created us to do, which is to glorify you, which is to take joy in our glorifying of you. And we do. We are those who take refuge in the shadow of your cross. We take refuge from the travails of this world, the travails of our own flesh and our weaknesses, from the attacks of Satan himself against us. Many a times that we have grown weary. There are times that we have fallen. All the more we look to the cross and rest in the shadow of that cross, knowing that our sins are forgiven by the work of Jesus Christ. For we must confess before you that we have sinned. We continue to commit sins, and, and though it grieves us, yet we commit sins yet again. They are the, the sins that beset us that we cannot seem to shake off, and we, we commit it again and, and again. And oftentimes we despair. Will we ever overcome it? Can we ever please you? There's a sin that we thought that we had overcome or that we thought that we could never commit, and, and yet we have become guilty of it. And we wonder, can you, can you still have favor with us? Can you still forgive us? We wonder what we must do to, to make up for it, and what resolve must we take, and what good works must we do, and penance we must make. And then we look to the cross, And there we see yet again that our sins have been forgiven. They have been nailed to the cross and dealt with once and for all. And that what has been exchanged with us is we have given to Christ our sins. He has given to us his clothing of righteousness that covers us. We are covered with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. How wondrous that is. And at times we... At times we even doubt it. We, we wonder how that can be. Yet what we may not be able to understand, we can trust. We can believe that the work that our Lord Jesus determined to carry out, he did carry it out. That you were pleased with that one sacrifice. That you are true to your word and that we are your people. That you will not let us go. That you have forgiven us. It's in that peace of mind that we may come before you and and worship you and and present our petitions before you that you bid us to do. As our Lord Jesus has said, he has told us, commanded us, to come before our Heavenly Father in his name, knowing that you will hear, knowing that you will do what is right and good for us, that you bid us to, to make our appeals to you. Our Father, we pray for this world a world in which there is much darkness, a world in which there is much violence. And it is, is made clear to us every day as we have the news. And uh, it, is, it is just before our eyes and our minds continually. And we wonder at times if there ever can be peace. We know that there will never be the complete peace till our Lord returns. And yet, 
that you have sent your Holy Spirit who dwells and moves about in this world and he can work in the hearts even of those who do not acknowledge you. And we pray that he would bring a measure of peace, particularly in areas where there have been so much violence. We pray for the protection and peace for our brothers and sisters who are persecuted because they confess the name of Christ, who have had their church buildings burned down, who have lost their lives, lost their loved ones. That we pray that you would sustain them, uphold them, and all the more that your gospel would go forth and give hope uh, to those who have been lost and have never heard the gospel. We thank you for how the gospel is flourishing uh, in areas like such as China and many nations in, in Asia and in Africa, places that had never heard the gospel before, and that is where it is flourishing. And we thank you for that work of your spirit. We pray for that same work to be working in our own country and in Europe and all the Western nations. We pray for those who go forth with the gospel and pray that you may use them mightily and bring fruit for their labors. We thank you for those who are working for the sake of the gospel here in our own community. We thank particularly the ministry that we support, Atlas Ministry, and the many different programs that they do to bring hope uh, to families that have uh, struggled for, for generations. And because that they are present, the works that they are doing in the lives of children and of families, uh, that there are those who did not have hope that now have it, are working their way out of poverty, and all the more though this work is being done in the name of Jesus Christ. And there have been those who had, did not know him, but now come to know him because of that ministry. Our Father, we pray for our own church, that we may be a light in our community. You have placed us here, both as a, as a church building in this location where we worship you, and also that you have given us and placed us in our different homes. May we be lights wherever you have placed us, in our homes, in our work, in our schools, here in this building. We may glorify our Lord Jesus Christ. And then we lift before you our own needs. You know, the sadnesses that are in some of our hearts, the fears that we have, the anxieties, maybe over physical health, maybe over relationships, and maybe over concerns of, of loved ones whom we care deeply about. You know what our needs are, and we pray, our Father, for you to shepherd us, lift us up, to hear our prayers and to answer them, to give us a peace about whatever is taking place in our lives. We pray that you convict us where we need conviction, that we may be too comfortable where we are, and we pray that you would so speak to us and, and, and speak to our own hearts for how we may need to be better serving you. We pray, our Father, that you would speak to us this morning. And as we open your word, that it will be your Holy Spirit who illumines our minds and gives us understanding. That all the more that when we walk forth, that we would walk forth in greater knowledge of the gospel, the hope that is in us, and more equipped to serve our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. 
Well, our scripture this morning is Luke 9, verses 28 to 36. We encourage you to, to use your Bibles, uh, whatever version you might have. I use the English Standard Version. We have the New International Version uh, there in the pews. We also have the, uh, the text as well in an insert, and you can follow along there and take notes if you would like. So Luke 9, verses 28 to 36. Let us hear the word of God. Now, about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, for when they became fully awake, they saw his glory, and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Well, many of us have had an episode, at least once or so in our lives, that we would call a mountaintop experience. Maybe we went on a retreat or some other thing, or we're actually maybe walking up, up on a mountain. And we're filled with, with a, a sense of joy and, and, and inspiration. Well, our ta- text today gives us that original mountaintop experience. I suppose this is where the phrase comes from. It's that time in which Jesus was transfigured and his disciples were surrounded literally by the glory of God. It was an excitement, an experience that terrified these three followers of Jesus. Now let's go back through this text, beginning with verse 28. Now about eight days after these things, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. Now, Verse 28 provides the setting for us. They're up on that mountain because Jesus has gone up there to pray. This is a pattern for him. He has a day of ministry or days of ministry. Then he has a time of prayer. and It's not uncommon for him to spend all night in prayer. Now this time he takes with him three of his disciples, Peter and James and John. They seem to be some kind of inner circle. This is not the first time in which they have been selected to be with him. When he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, he would take those three to be with him uh, closest to him when he's having his prayer. Now, it is that phrase, after these sayings, 
that gives us the clue of what this mountaintop experience is all about. It provides the context for us. Now, what were these sayings? Well, they were sayings in which Jesus had been teaching about his sufferings and his death to come. Sufferings that both he and his disciples would experience. So earlier in uh, chapter 9, if you have your Bibles open, I'm going to read in verses 21 to 27. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So he has been teaching them that there will be suffering. The Son of Man must suffer many things. If anyone would come after me, let me deny himself and take up his cross. There will be death. He says that the Son of Man will be killed. He speaks of those who follow him who will lose their life. But there will also be life and glory. And he says the Son of Man on the third day will be raised. He speaks of the Son of Man who will come again in glory. And whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. He will gain that. So suffering and death are soon to come. And Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem now. Indeed, as as Luke will say later on in the chapter, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. It is there that he will suffer, that he will be killed shamefully. It will appear that he is disgraced, that his mission has failed. It will appear that he is not who he claimed to be. So with that in mind, let's continue this story. Verse 29. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. Note this change in Jesus. The appearance of his face was altered. Matthew and Mark in their Gospels, they use a Greek term called metamorphotho. You might hear the English word, metamorphosis. It means to be changed, to be, as our translations have it in Matthew and and Mark, transfigured. That's where we get this term, the transfiguration. And what does that mean that he was changed? Well, what happens to his clothing kind of gives us an idea. And his clothing became dazzling white. We have brightness. So that Jesus' face has been transfigured, it is that his glory has been unveiled. It is now manifested, and and they see Jesus Christ in all of his glory. Matthew describes the change clearly. He says his face 
shone like the sun. Peter, years later, would attest that we were eyewitnesses of his his majesty. That's what was appeared to him. John would say, we have seen his, his glory. Now, verses 30 to 31 add an intriguing element to this. There is a conversation with two men. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, let's consider, first of all, who these two men are. Why Moses? Why Elijah? Now, none of the gospel writers explain this. But there's a common phrase used in the New Testament, and indeed that was used uh, among uh, the Jews at that time, that indicated what their symbolic meaning is. Let me read just one of the verses that includes this phrase. It's from the Gospel of John. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. This phrase is the law and the prophets. That was just another way of saying the Holy Scriptures. Moses always represents the law. And Elijah, in this case, is likely representing the prophets. So we have Moses and Elijah representing what we call the Old Testament, what would have been their, their scriptures. Now, Luke speaks of their appearing uh, in glory as well. Now, what he's likely speaking of is the glory that's reflected of, of those who live in the presence of God. Let me read an example of this, of Moses from his earthly life. It's in Exodus 34:29. Moses has gone up to Mount Sinai there, and he's received the, the tablets, the, the commandments. And it says, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Being in the presence of God causes this glory, this this presence of, of God to be reflected on his face. Now, what are the three men discussing here? Well, we're told they're discussing his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. They're talking about what Jesus has been trying to teach his disciples about. He's going to Jerusalem. That's where he's going to suffer. That's where he's going to be killed. And that is where he's going to rise again. And he's going to ascend. He's going to depart and and go up into, into glory. Now, there's a difference. You know, with the disciples, Jesus has been preparing them for what they still do not really understand. And they certainly are not expecting it. And actually, they really don't want to hear about it. For whenever Jesus would talk about it, they'd just go quiet. This is one thing they really did not like to listen to. See, it just did not square with their understanding of the law and the prophets. They're looking for that mighty Messiah who's going to come and he's, he's going to, to conquer their enemies and, and has set up the kingdom right then and there. And, and they, by the way, because they're followers of Jesus, they're going to they're be rulers in that kingdom. 
You know, I wonder if, some, if part of the discussion was the disciples' very ignorance that he's talking with Moses and Elijah because those two men would have been sympathetic. Moses never could get the Israelite wanderers to really settle down and behave and understand what the holy nation that they were to be. And I'm sure you didn't even want to get Elijah started on the subject of how the people of his time responded to the prophets. The common experience of responding to the prophets was to stone them, to, uh, to get rid of them. But more likely, again, they're talking about these details. Jesus is going to fulfill, the, of how Jesus is going to fulfill these prophecies about him. It's the law. It's in Moses. It's in the prophets where we will find out if someone is reading and studying with understanding what is going to happen in Jerusalem. And then enters Peter. Let's read Peter here. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory in the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. That last comment is an understatement. Knowing what we know about Peter, that could have been said about many of his statements. And in this case, it's particularly embarrassing. He's waking up. He's coming out of a sleep. He doesn't know what they're talking about. He sees his his, his master shining in glory, and he, he blurts out this ridiculous statement, which is just another good case study for us to, to, to hold on to that true principle. If you don't know what to say, don't say it. Okay. Now, he does, Peter does get a response to this particular saying. Let's look in verse 34. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came. And overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Now, Let's talk a little bit about this cloud. The theologians have a term for what just took place here and what this cloud is. It's called a theophany. And that, that theo is God. And the, the phony is from the Greek phonine, which means to manifest or to show. And what the cloud is then is it is a representation of God. Here's God's presence is there in that cloud. Now, we're familiar with this cloud. We've, we have come across it many another time. It is the cloud that covered uh, Mount Sinai when Moses had gone up there. And to get those commandments, is a cloud descended upon that mountain. When Moses asked to, to see God, and a cloud came down. When the, the first tabernacle was set up in the wilderness, we read about the cloud that descended upon it and rested over that mercy seat. And this was the cloud that was leading the people 
through the wilderness. This is God leading them. When Solomon built the temple and he brought the ark into it, the cloud again descended upon it. And so the presence of God here is descending on this mountain, engulfing the disciples, and they should very well be afraid. You know, it's that same fear here that that we've come across before. We read about it in Jonah. And after the, the mariners had thrown Jonah overboard and the sea suddenly grew still. And they were told that they feared God. It's the same fear the disciples felt when they were on the Sea of Galilee and and Jesus, again, stilled a storm and it says that they were terrified with fear. It's the same type of fear. And Now, in those instances, see, something's a little bit different here. They felt a holy fear after witnessing a miracle. They saw something happen. They did not see God. In this case, and Jesus looked the same as he did when he, when he calmed that storm, he, didn't, he wasn't transfigured. It was still the same by, by faith that they, they felt something was different. They'd felt, they realized the presence of a holy God. But here, there's no faith here. God descends upon them in this cloud and they are overwhelmed with his presence. And they fall prostrate and trembling, terrifying fear as any sinner ought to before the holy God. And in this time, it is God who does the talking. This is my son, my chosen one. Now, we think, of course, this all makes sense to us. Jesus, yes, of course, he is God's son. This is Jesus, uh, God the son. Of course, he's son of the God. But it is also was a title for the Messiah, And they looked for the Messiah to come, who would be like a son of God. And the other title for the Messiah was the Chosen One. And so what God is attesting to here is, here is the Messiah. This is the one that you are looking to. This is the one spoken of uh, in the law and the prophets. And indeed, these disciples and all the Jews would have understood would have understood these terms. So when they heard the term son, they they thought of Psalm 2 that uses the term the anointed, which which is the word Messiah, what Messiah means. And in that same psalm, God says, you, speaking of a king, you are my son. And then in Isaiah 42, 1, which again, they understood to be a text for the Messiah. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. So God again is attesting, here is the Messiah, and then he says, listen to him. Okay? Listen to what he is teaching about himself, and what he is teaching about his mission. Pay attention. And this experience was going to have such an impact on the disciples not even, not even Peter would speak of it. Not until we know after the resurrection. We don't know when he actually finally spoke of this until we will read about it later on in one of the epistles that he wrote. Well, this passage is just filled 
with many lessons, practical lessons for us. Again, I, I can't, I don't think you want me to spend the hour to go through the lesson, so I'll have to be a little bit selective here. But the very first lesson here is the words that God spoke to the disciples. Listen to him. Listen to Jesus. Listen to the words that he spoke. We have them, we have them in here. We have them in the Gospels. This is where we turn to, to listen to what Jesus has to say. And think how profitable it would be. If you were to, each day, you were to read a word, a verse, whatever you would read, spoken by your Lord. But if you do so, which I think is a great idea, read all the words of Jesus. And what we like to do, I like to do this, is to pick out verses that make me feel good. I like to read the comforting words and the words of promise and the words of forgiveness. And and Jesus spoke many words like that. But he also spoke some words that are very difficult to have to hear. They're words of conviction, of admonishment. He spoke some words that were hard to understand and requires deep concentration and, and, and study. But we need to listen to all of his words if we're going to truly profit from them and particularly if we wish to honor to honor him. We can't be selective. Now, are there other ways to listen to Jesus apart from Scripture? What, for example, about listening to Jesus in prayer? And certainly we ought to do that. When we pray, we oftentimes are very busy giving Jesus counsel and God counsel of uh, not just telling them what our needs are, but uh, how they should answer uh, what our prayers are about. And we would be well to, uh, to be quiet oftentimes in, in listening to God in prayer. And certainly the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all can speak to us. And certainly, if we read Scripture in a prayerful manner, all the more we will profit from that. Um, you know, reading the Psalms or reading again Jesus' words and then praying, reflecting on those words. Be very uplifting and, 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 and teach us much. But, um, and, you know, I can think of a time in, in which, uh, or we could, I'm trying to think the different uh, examples here. But I remember one woman, she was talking to me of how she had taken uh, a word of Scripture. She was just reading it through her devotions. And how it just jumped out at her and caused her to be able to claim it for her, for herself and for her daughters. She was reading Isaiah 43, verses 5 through 6. I want to read it to you. And it God is, God is speaking to Israel. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters, from the end of the earth. And she had three daughters who had been straying from the faith. And I remember her talking to me and how she was claiming that for her daughters, who, by the way, all have come back to the faith. And there are times when we 
again, are, are, we're in prayer and we might feel God's presence in a, in a very special way, in a spiritual way, or we might sense His leading. And certainly His Holy Spirit is in us. That Holy Spirit can speak to us. There are times in which we've had difficult decisions to make and we, we felt that the, after prayer that the Lord was leading us in a certain direction. Or maybe we were very troubled and, and because we were praying, we felt a sense of His peace with us. And that is all good. And yet there can be a danger. There can be a danger when we move from these, these inner impressions that we get in which we, we feel God is around us, we think God might be causing us to, to do something. We might say something like, you know, I think God is saying to me. There's a danger when we go from that to going to God told me. Jesus told me in which we're moving from impressions that we have to in which we're saying, I have received a revelation. Let me give you an example of this. It took place in George Fox. George Fox was the founder of the Quaker movement. And George Fox, there was a time, I think he was living in the 1600s, and he felt dry. He was not feeling uh, spiritually fed by the preachers and teachers of his day. And then one day he heard an inner voice. And the inner voice said to him, There is one, even Jesus Christ, that can speak to thy condition. And that sounds good. It sounds very proper. I mean, even now what we're we're being taught here is that we need to be listening to Jesus, don't we? But Fox took it further. He, He wrote this. He said, He realized that people had no need of any teacher but the light that was in all men and women. There's a light already within us. This is an anointing that we have received. And if we would just be silent, just wait on God, the light would teach them how to conduct their lives. It would teach them about Christ and so on. So that we no longer need to look here, no longer need to hear a teacher, just being quiet, and receive the message from, from Jesus and from God. Now, it's no surprise to Scripture. I mean, George Fox that certainly believed in Jesus Christ, but there's no uh, surprise that over time that believing in Jesus is optional now uh, because we can get our inner light from wherever it comes. Once we move away from Scripture, then we believe, we can pretty much believe anything that our inner self is telling us. Now, there is one, but one thing that is clear, or that our Word would teach us. The only clear revelation that we can know is the revelation from God. The only words that we know, that we could say, these are the words of Jesus, come from the Scriptures. And we can say, thus saith the Lord. We can say, here are the words of Jesus. Only here. Now, in a little bit of timidness, I need to bring up one thing, just because as I was preparing this, I was thinking, listening to Jesus Oh, I know what 
a number of people will be thinking about. And so I need to speak with this with a little bit of caution, but we need to be careful when we read devotions that purport to saying, here are the words of Jesus. Now thinking particularly of the very popular devotion, Jesus Calling. Now it's one thing for someone to say, I have a deep devotional life and here's what I've been learning as, I, as I've read scripture, as I prayed, and I'm sharing what I have learned. It's another thing when the author says, I have received messages from Jesus and I'm sharing those messages with you. Again, it's good to be quiet before the Lord as a listener. But it's another thing to say when these thoughts that come to our mind are messages from Jesus. And then to give them out as though they are the revealed words of Jesus. Now, I've read the most recent preface to the book. And the preface, the most recent preface is, is fine. There it is saying, just what I was saying, you know, I've I've been having devotions and these are gleanings from my devotions. Only scripture is to be an errant and and I'm just sharing, you know, what I've been been learning. That's fine. But in the original preface, she speaks of the messages that she received. She points to a book, God Calling, which is a book about two other anonymous women who had just received messages from God and, made, and said that was her inspiration. That's what she wanted to be able to do as well. Okay. Be careful. That's all I'm saying. I don't have any doubt, knowing a little bit more about her, that she is a, is a Christian and that probably most of what she's writing is, is fine. But be careful that as you read these things, that you are not reading them as though you are reading the Bible. That you are not saying, this is what Jesus is saying. Okay. Always, which is what she's doing pretty much in her devotional, she's also having scripture with them. Now, let's move on to then the lessons I really want to teach here. We are to trust, or to listen to Jesus And we are to trust the scriptures. We are to trust the law and the prophets. You know, many years after this mountaintop experience, finally the Apostle Peter would bring it back up again. And he wrote about it in his second letter. He knew that his time on earth was drawing to a close. And so he's exhorting his readers to stay the course. Continue to live as followers of Christ. Live godly lives. He assures them that their faith rests on truth that they can, they can rest upon. They can depend upon it. And then he writes this. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father... And the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. We were there, okay? We heard it, we saw it. And we have 
the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And what Peter is saying is, look, you can trust him on this. You can trust him and his fellow apostles. You can trust John. He would have said James. James is dead by that time. He's saying, look, we're eyewitnesses of the most glorious thing that one could experience. It revealed the glory of Jesus Christ. It confirmed him as God's son. It confirmed that he was carrying out the Father's will. It confirmed that he was carrying out God's will as prophesied in Scripture. And that's the essential point. It was the lesson for the disciples. The cross was not a failure. It was fulfillment, not divergence, from biblical prophecy. Prophecies which comes from men, not making it up in their minds, but who are speaking from God. The prophecy of Scripture is revelation. It needs no revision to fit in later to kind of make things work out okay. Now, Peter and James and John were were granted this glorious vision. But as wonderful as it was, what Peter is saying is, we don't need it. You don't need it. We don't have to have that same experience to know the truth of the gospel glory. We have Scripture. That is a word that is more fully confirmed. It's a word to which we will do well to pay attention to. Experiences come and go. Feelings, they go up and down. But the word of the Lord stands forever. That's the lesson that Peter, years later, is taking away from his mountaintop experience. And I tell you, Peter needed that kind of a lesson. Peter's up there and experiences the glory of, of, of Jesus Christ. Okay, He's the one who later on would deny Jesus. He would be the one who, after courageously preaching, and he's filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and he becomes a leader of the church, and he's doing all of these wonderful things, and later on, he goes to Galatia. He, he's dining and, and having fellowship with Gentile believers and some others come from the church in Jerusalem and he is scared and, and he will no longer be with the Gentiles. I mean, Peter experiences these wonderful things and then he experiences the worst things. If all Peter had to depend on for faith is continually you know, experiencing this presence of God. You know, keep, keep feeling it, keep reliving it. Then he had to be a miserable wretch. But it is the revealed word of God that's found in the law and the prophet and the gospels and the epistles and, and all of scripture. That is what our faith is founded upon. And that is what must remain the anchor of our faith. And if we do so, 
if we read and we believe the word of scriptures, then we can be assured of a glorious hope that is delivered to us. Hear what this hope is from the spirit-inspired words of Peter in his first epistle. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you understand that last line? What awaits you is praise, is glory, is honor. There will come a day when we ourselves will be transfigured. We will have a mountaintop experience of all mountaintop experiences. One that never ends. One whose glory never fades. And we can count on it. Because it is written in the Word of God. We give you thanks and praise, our God, for your Word. That you have revealed to to your people and that you have revealed to to men of past times so that now we, we have your very words. We don't need to be looking for it in other experiences through other people. We, we have your word. May we keep reading and keep being hungry for it, keep studying it, so that our hope will be built upon a solid foundation. We give you thanks for the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.